Welcome, Mistorians. Host Austin Heave-She and host Brenda She-Her have been waiting for you. Come along for Secret Histories of Nerd Mysteries. Episode 92 of Secret Histories of Nerd Mysteries. Welcome, Mistorians, to the, the Mystery Palace. This is our Mystery Mind Palace. The Mind Palace where the mysteries go to <laughs> Be mystified. Die. <laughs> die. I guess we do kill... Hey, does the Scooby gang kill mysteries? <laughs> yes, because they're always just like, it's Mr. Mr. Williamson. No, okay, oh my god. What, which movie is it? There's a movie where that happens where... Fred's parents take them on a cruise, and it's a mystery cruise. But they solve every mystery of the cruise like the first day. Oh, that's like a that's like fully that's like fully a plot, and everyone on the cruise hates them. I feel it's like if like Conan were to go, Detective Conan. For for those of you who don't know, Detective Conan, little baby boy, little guy, he's in an anime that's been running for uh, thirty years now. Um, Anyway, (laughs) if he were to go to like a little. like one of those mystery dinners. Yeah. Wait, no, he does that. He goes on a um a mystery train that's supposed to be like Murder on the Orient mm-hmm. Express. Mm-hmm. And, and that episode's actually very serious. Someone almost dies. That's so of the main cast. It's so, I love how like you make someone who's really good at solving mysteries. What should we do? Put them in the goofiest. I want this guy to go to an escape room and think there's a real killer, and they're like, no, it's an it wasn't it's a it's like a whole thing. There is a, it's, yeah. There is no real killer. But oh no, there is a real killer. It's so, because then they could put their guard down. They're like, oh wait, this is a game. Like, yes, it's a game. I'm going to reset. And please let the normal people play this time. Thank you. This morning I woke up and my first thought upon looking at a sunless sky Mm -hmm. was just that, fuck, Chanticleer didn't crow this morning. And then I was like, Brenda, what the fuck? That was my <laughs> first thought. Upon waking up, I was like, that goddamn rooster from that goddamn Don Bluth film didn't that grow mo- and bring up the sun. That movie is terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. It is uncanny valley. It is like those fucking owls. People die. <laughs> People die. The sun doesn't come up and they never really explain why the sun doesn't no. come up because they determine they're like, oh, well, Sean DeClaire doesn't actually bring up the sun, but then he does and then everything's fine. So what? <laughs> like, yeah, I like barely remember the we this is like not even remotely what we're doing, today, but I barely <laughs> remember the plot of that movie. Besides, like they want to kill the rooster. So there's no sun. And then I remember like distinctly two weeks later, I found out like how if that happened, we, like, everything just dies? I was like, oh, there's no sun, it's yeah. just nighttime all the time. People are like, no, 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 no. So the sun's really bright. The sun also makes nighttime. <laughs> if the sun's gone, there just isn't light. Austin, are you telling me you don't remember the entire plot of 1991 Sorokadoodle? No, I don't. It's one of those movies where every, every once in a while someone mentions it, and I'm like, oh, it wasn't just me. Like, I didn't nightmare that movie. <laughs> 
it's real. For a long time, I thought I nightmared the the Rodney Dangerfield dog movie. Mm, mm-hmm. It's called Rover Dangerfield. Yes. Because he's a dog. Because he's a dog, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the joke. That one, <laughs> Brave Little Toaster. There's, <laughs> another, there's another one where I thought, like, I just imagined it. Oh, I can't remember what it is. No, it's the uh, the live-action pet one where the pets, like... Talk. They talk, but they yes. like, their mouths don't move. They just, like, look at each... They just, like, make the animals look at each other. Uh, found out that movie had, like, horrible treatment of animals. It's, like, one of the movies for why there's, like, so many laws <gasps> about animals. Milo and Otis. Yeah, there's, like... There's, like, laws because of that movie. <laughs> yeah. Like, I think... At first, I was, like, Homeward Bound? Look who's talking to? And then I was, like, oh, wait, no. Milo and Otis were yeah. they... Yeah. Not gonna go into it. Just don't watch that movie. Don't watch that one. The, they they were not they were not nice those animals on set, and we have laws for that now. <laughs> yeah, thank God. It's a artistic Japanese film that yeah. they brought to the United States, and we all watched, and it's traumatizing. But anyway, yeah. that's just a peek into our childhood. <laughs> but I think we're gonna roll into our new segment instead. Loading news. All right, so this week's news story is going to be Chuck E. Cheese has announced at a press conference that occurred on November 2nd that they are officially, actually, for real this time, eliminating the animatronics at all of their locations Mm. except for one in Northridge, California. But what I need to stress, like when we say Chuck E. Cheese announced, we like, please go the press conference. It is it's literally an animatronic of Chuck E. Cheese. This company is absolutely deranged. I love them so much. Thank you for coming to our press conference today. We are going to be performing on a regular basis here in Northridge, California. That's in Los Angeles, California. Here at a great little venue that's perfect for a band like us. It's called a residency. Oh, we'll still be jamming in other places, too. But we'll be jamming in Northridge regularly. Yeah, we jam more than your printer. (laughs) That's the news. We thought we should let you know officially, especially all you super fans out there that want to know where to find us. It's, it is it is literally not figuratively, not the CGI Chucky. They got like one of the animatronics to be up there for this announcement. They programmed this announcement onto a little <laughs> floppy disk and inserted it into Chucky's butthole. <laughs> Sorry, that was a little too much. My mom's listening to this show now. Oh, God. Inserted it into Hi, the regular place where you insert floppy disks into animatronics. It's not actually his butthole. I know that. It's not funny. <laughs> anyway, so they programmed a new stage show. Just mm-hmm. so this animatronic can look us dead in the eyes and say, all of my <laughs> brethren are going to die. <laughs> the culling has begun. I am one of the few I will, chosen. <laughs> I will be the last one standing when they're dead, because I get to stay here at the Northridge, California location <laughs> of Chuck E. Cheese. Did they say why Northridge? Yes, um, a kid or a guy, a fellow, a lad, campaigned to have the animatronics at that specific location saved. Mm. So it's not the original um, location. It's not the first Chuck E. Cheese location. No. I don't believe that location still exists anymore. No, it's just it super this one. Doesn't. Yeah, it really does not. And so, like, it was just someone who really loved these animatronics and campaigned for the specific ones at the specific location that they really loved mm. to be saved. And that that is cool. Yeah. But 
Um, that also means that, like, so, okay, let me get into some Chuck E. Cheese technicalities really quick. Yes. There's different types of Chuck E. Cheese animatronics. So the most common ones that you can still find right now are going to be the Cyberamic Chuck E. Cheese animatronics. These are the ones that were designed internally by um, Chuck E. Cheese themselves. Mm-hmm. These mm-hmm. are the original ones. Then you also have C-Stages, which is just Chucky. These are the newest ones. It's just Chucky alone without the rest of the band members with a screen that he talks to like to communicate to them. Mm-hmm. And then you also have what's called a three-stage. And a three-stage is a retrofitted showbiz pizza animatronic set that has been skinned and replaced with the skins of the Chuck E. Cheese characters. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to describe it like that, but no, I did. you did. No, you did. No, it's it's important <laughs> um, to think of someone peeling off the showbiz pizza characters and putting on Chuck E. Cheese in the band. Legitimately, that's what happened. And Austin, I know this, but dear listeners, if you didn't know this, all of the showbiz pizza animatronics were peeled and replaced with Munch's Make Believe Band in the '80s, and this was called concept unification. I might input a little bit of the concept unification official instructional video here. Mm -hmm. It is, if you've ever seen those scary FNAF VHS tapes that are trying way too hard to be scary, (laughs) that just is what concept unification is. I also need to stress once again, Chuck E. Cheese as a brand company idea is so, think, think, you're like, what do we call, (laughs) what do we call this marketing move that we're doing as a normal company that sells pizza and arcade games to kids? Concept unification. Welcome to the concept unification installation tape. Now remove all cosmetics from the characters starting with Duke. First his hat, then belt, collar, and vest, mask, ears and ear levers, feet, which need to be unbolted, and the tree bark from around the platform. It's giving synergy. It's giving <laughs> 80s shoulder pads. It's giving guys in business suits. You know the dude who said that was sitting there, fingers bowed in a triangle, cloaked half in shadow. Concept unifications help go greatly, leader. This is, this is the process by which we will <laughs> unite our two brands. It will be flawless. No one will even know. What a wild name to call a very it's normal so thing, which funny. is like, we're re- we rebranding. Let's like merge the two brands and make it all Chuck E. Cheese. Did it need a name? Probably not. I, but they gave it one and it was concept unification. The entire concept unification video is like 20 minutes long and I have watched the whole thing. <laughs> it's like, it goes on so long because they're like, and then we replace the paws and the head and the mask. <laughs> like... The mask mask is what they refer to, like, the the latex parts of the faces. So, like, they all have, like, the fur, but all of these, most of these animatronics, I don't think Cyberamics have it, but Showbiz Pizza animatronics and those that were concept unified have latex face parts. Mm -hmm. Those are referred to as the mask. And yes, they can melt. (laughs) Yeah, of course they can. There's so many, there's, there's so many, like, just horrific images of melted animatronic masks. They're like up there on the stage underneath the harsh stage lights all day and they just kind of start to melt. It's in an unshocking way. Who could have seen this coming? Everybody. (laughs) Who could have foreseen that if we use a material that degrades notoriously awfully over the period of (laughs) decades that this would happen to us? It it degrades pretty fast when compared to other materials you can use to build Mm -hmm. things. It degrades 
in a lifetime. Yeah, honestly, it's like, it's been like, what, 30 years? Yeah, like the person who put that on is still around and not in like a geriatric way. Yeah, like still like 50s, 60s, I don't know how old <laughs> Tw- it is, but... The 20 year old who put that on is like still like going to that mm-hmm. Chuck E. Cheese with their grandkids. Exactly. Back to Chuck E. Cheese's announcement, the... The ones that are going to be saved and preserved by the Chuck E. Cheese Company are going to be their original Cyberamic stage show. So these are not very expressive. They have like the big triangular heads. They don't have the masks. Yeah. I'm going to say it. They're not as good as the Showbiz ones are. The Showbiz or the Studio C ones. They're not as like articulate. But I can understand Chuck E. Cheese wanting to save these ones because that is their history. But then again, Austin and I have been researching into Chuck E. Cheese's that still have <laughs> <Jesus> electronics. <Christ. laughs> we were like, we should go to one. And then like a week later, like, you mean go to Northridge, California, you fucking loser? <laughs> yeah. And we had like heard that Asheville, North Carolina, has Mm -hmm. a three-stage that it's identical to what Flint's three-stage used to be, so it's like the same band that I grew up with, and it's Mm -hmm. like, oh, but they're going to take them out in December. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Huge bummer. I'm so happy that they're destroying it. (laughs) We weren't planning a special show road trip or anything. (laughs) I know the Try Guys already recorded a podcast episode in a Chuck E. Cheese, but I just want to say to Keith and Zach, fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what's you know what's actually wild is like now that we're on maximum fun there's like a, not a zero chance they don't chance hear that one day okay let me also say that i know this because i listen to the try guys podcast and i watch the try guys and so this is a fuck you with love but also fuck you no it's so valid we'll just go to northridge it's fine i don't yeah. know what is i don't know where in california northridge is because that state is too big but I'm sure there's something besides a Chuck E. Cheese. Surely yeah, at least a Motel 6. Something. Some place to stay. Who knows? We're going to look it um, up. We're going to get emails from Norfridge, California listeners. Like, how dare you? Like, bad come mouth. stay. Oh, I was thinking they were going to invite us with open arms. Oh, no. Because like, I, I badmouthed. Like, sh- I'm sure there's something else in Norfridge. <laughs> if you live in Northridge, California, or if you've been there, tell us what there is to do there. Maybe we'll, I don't, I can't guarantee we'll come visit, no, but maybe I, if we get big enough, we will. I promise nothing besides that I do want to go see the animatronics. We would love to go see them. We would love to record. If you're the manager of the Northridge Chuck E. Cheese, we'll come, we'll record. It, it'll be great. It'll be a it'll fun be time. Last thing that I want to say is that people are also discovering that Chuck E. Cheese destroys their animatronics after they're done with them. It's not just that these like three stages and C stages are going to get retired. Chuck E. Cheese requires that their employees prove that they have destroyed them. So, you know, that, <laughs> like that's a, a bummer. Like a like a hitman, show me the body. Exactly. I, you I have to send make them sure, pictures. I want to make sure the job is done. There's like this really haunting like guide about how to specifically destroy them. Like you have to like smash the head, and it's got like these drawn pictures of Chuck <laughs> telling you how to kill him. <laughs> You gotta, you see, you gotta destroy, destroy me or I'll race. This, from this the company grave. is not as unserious. <laughs> it's so funny. You gotta destroy it. Oh, like take it apart. No, 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 no. This is how you bash the head in. Hello? <laughs> Hello? I have to destroy this? This is why there aren't a lot of like Chuck E. Cheese animatronics specifically in the hands of private collectors. You have like tons of showbiz pizza animatronics mm-hmm. that are available because like so there's like Billy Bob's Wonderland, which is like not affiliated 
legally with showbiz pizza in any capacity, but they have a full showbiz pizza band that they just recently refurbished because a while ago you could literally just buy from the factory a brand new showbiz stage. But with Chuck E. Cheese, they're destroyed. You have older Chuck E. Cheese animatronics. So like there's Mm -hmm. a guy who has like five of the lion. So like some of the older ones are like in private hands, but like the newer ones aren't. I don't know, Asheville, North Carolina manager of the Chuck E. Cheese there, I am pleading with you. You can destroy the internals, but if you could save their skins and <laughs> give them to someone who has the showbiz pizza set so they can reskin them and preserve them, you should just skin them and, and sell the skins. <laughs> wow. Uh, here's a promo. <laughs> Oh, darling, why won't you accept my love? My dear, even though you are a duke, I could never love you. You, you borrowed a book from me and never returned it. (gasps) Save yourself from this terrible fate by listening to Reading Glasses. We'll help you get those borrowed books back and solve all your other reader problems. Reading Glasses, every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Learning. Topic of the week. And we're back. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, everybody. We definitely took like a real break and didn't just sit here in silence for 10 seconds. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Hey, what's up, everyone? That was that was crazy. We're talking about skinning and animatronics. Uh, So I listen, uh, I'm in the driver's seat today and I need to ask Brenda where they think we're going because this is okay. this is for me everybody i have been determined to stump brenda and i have not over 92 episodes yeah this might be the first time i'm stumped so austin has shared an image on our twitter mm-hmm. if you want to play along if you haven't already seen it if you haven't already figured it out this image is of a barn it appears and there's an owl on top of mm-hmm. the barn in a wooded area so my mm-hmm. first instinct my first instinct was is this the fraggle rock house the answer was no, it looks nothing like the Fraggle Rock house. And then I was just, well, I'm in stumpin'. You've been stumpin'. This is incredible. <laughs> so you all will need to go with me on a journey. Okay, I'm ready. We It's going to be quite the journey, and I will unveil what that image is from. But first, we have to start at the beginning. The year is 1987. I was dead. <laughs> I was... I'm sorry, I say that every time, and it's never funny. It's. I literally always laugh. Uh, everyone out there listening, laugh. <laughs> Imagine this is a live studio audience and it says laughter above your head right now. The year is 1987. The company Square is about to release a game that they admittedly never wanted to release in the first place and think is a dumb idea, which will change the face of gaming as we know it. I was tasked with the question of how do we start getting narrative in video games? Oh my gosh! So you might know what Final Fantasy is, but maybe you've never like played the original or have no idea what the original is about. So let me quickly give you a synopsis of the original plot of Final Fantasy (laughs) for the first game. You have four party members. 
they control. They're the Warriors of Light. They each have a darkened orb that they have to go, like, cleanse. They have to go ponder it. They have to go ponder the orb. You go fight some bosses, you ponder your orb, your orb is cleared. They travel across the Kingdom of Corneria and also the Ruined Temple of Fiends. You rescue a princess, you, like, defeat evil knights, you do, like, very prototypical fantasy things. Once you defeat the four fiends and you get all the orbs restored in the four different temples, you open a portal to the Temple of Fiends in 2,000 years in the past. You confront the creator of all the fiends, you defeat them, you save the world. There's like a whole time loop and stuff involved. It's like a very high fantasy thing going on in the first Final Fantasy game. The original Final Fantasy is helmed by Hironobu Sagaguchi. It was him and then just his team that he called his A-team. I tried to track down the name of each member of the A-team that Hironobu talks about, but... They're usually referred to like his A-team, and it it seems like people who don't want the spotlight on them as much. Like, they don't necessarily need... Like, I'm sure if I went through the credits of Final Fantasy, I could write down their names, but I did not do that. Well, it's like also like around this time, a lot of game developers were anonymous. Like, you like finish an older like game for the NES, Mm -hmm. and it would literally be like, art by egg. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) Square did not want to make this game. They had no interest in making these like turn-based tactics with big grand story with all this dialogue being written. They're like this, like, why would we, they're like, why would we make that game? It doesn't sound like it'll make money. But Dragon Quest, which came before Final Fantasy, had success and they said fine, but they still didn't have a lot of hope in it. He brought on a second team for the combat system. Guess what he based the combat system on, Brenda? Can you take a guess? Let's see. Okay, so it's like kind of like turn-based. Is it based on like a card game? No, it's actually based on Dungeons & Dragons 2nd Edition. Really? Ooh. He had been playing a lot of D&D and another game called Wizardry, which I could not find a lot about, but they're both like war games. I mean, we all know what D&D is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. At this time, wargaming is like a big deal. It's one of those very interesting things where like (laughs) media today is like people hated it. No one played it. And it's like, that's just not true. No, absolutely not. (laughs) That's just factually not a true statement you said. Because if no one one played it, we wouldn't have it. If no one played D&D, we wouldn't have D&D today. Because like Wizardry, Yeah, it would have just like disappeared. Like... (laughs) Nobody played Wizardry, because I've never heard of it a day in my life, and I I work in tabletop games. Never once have I heard of this game. This game does not have a wiki. I had a horrible time Googling Wizardry game and finding anything about this RPG. Because you just get um, stuff about the unnameable boy Wizard game. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So people are playing these games, and that's kind of what influenced Hironobu and the other team member who worked on the combat system. They wanted to include ideas from Western RPGs, and like it just makes sense for this tactical game to be turn-based with these fantastical elements. Because again, Final Fantasy is not like a fantasy Japanese story. Yeah. It's very Western in many ways. Like It has like Western themes like knights and like Western enemies like dragons and even when you get into later editions like the summons are usually western concepts like a lot of like monsters that we're really familiar with or classes that we're familiar with mm-hmm. like elves and mm-hmm. so it's it's very interesting that like of course it was of course D D makes it of, of course it's D. why would it be something else like that's why it looks so much like D. <laughs> But one of the interesting things it also did, on top of like having this big narrative story, is it also lets the player pick their class at the start. The game starts, you pick the class for the four Warriors of Light. Which, at least when I did the preliminary, just like quick research, seems like one of the first times you get to really do something that's in terms of like creating a character. Yeah, like the only other one from this era that I could think of is like in some games you could pick what character you wanted to be. But yeah. it's not quite the same because it's like completely different characters. So it's like, you know, let's say Mario 2. Right. Um, Princess Peach can jump, I think. 
Oh no, she can fly. Luigi right. can jump. Luigi can jump. I hate Mario too. <laughs> I've never played it. It's bad. I'm not shocked. People seem to like like have nostalgia for it, and I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I never got past the first level. Valid. But it could just be that I'm bad at video games. Old video games are hard. They are. They're hard. Have you ever played old Mega Man? <laughs> oh, my God. There was, like, one time uh, me and my friends got, like, one of those NES, um, the the little ones, the little NES yeah, yeah, minis. Yeah, 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 yeah. And we... <laughs> We were going absolutely feral trying to beat Mega Man 2. We were just like on the floor, like screaming, like, that, Wildland! Listen, ah! old video games are bullshit because they're still designed in mind to be quarter eaters, but they're in your house. And you're like, listen, I'm just here, please. I'm just here clutching the controller with an iron grip, holding it in my little hands, teeth clenched. I was going to make another butthole joke, but my mom listens to this now. Ah! Brenda's mom. <laughs> Brenda has a butt- butthole clenched. Uh, <laughs> Every muscle poised and coiled. Truly, Final Fantasy leads the way to one day get Final Fantasy VII, which a lot of people mark as the grandfather of modern day video game storytelling. That the way it pushed the medium forward is employed like very a lot of very at the time cutting edge storytelling things like it has an unreliable narrator and what's going on it has those super dramatic cutscenes like yeah. you play and you're a block and the cutscene starts and it's like you're watching a movie <laughs> yeah which was just like it's a holy shit moment like the first time a cutscene happened in the original game i'm like watching a movie right now like this is like really epic yeah. and also Sephiroth's kind of hot <laughs> Like, you see Sephiroth in, like, the block, and you're like, oh, weird. And then you're like, oh, he's hot. Okay. Oh, dear, he's hot, and he's got a big old sword. <laughs> wait, <laughs> that's our friend he's stabbing. Hold on. Oh, no. Wait, 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 Still wait, hot. wait, wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Air of Steph is probably yeah. the most iconic death of video games of all time. Look, TBH, I've never played a Final Fantasy. I don't count Kingdom Hearts, even though Cloud and Sephiroth are present. That's, Doesn't no, count. it's fair. It's different. Yeah. So I've never played a Final Fantasy, and even I freaking know about Aerith's death. Everyone yeah. knows. This is like Everyone one knew. of like the the pivotal moments of video gaming. Yeah. It's, it's like, like no one has a moment about like Donkey Kong, like when Donkey <laughs> Kong ascended the throne and became King King Donkey Kong. Not King Kong. Not King, King Donkey Kong. Kong. Legally not King Kong, they say repeatedly into the mic at, or- the, at the hearing for that exact game. <laughs> or when Bowser usurped the throne, we don't get a cutscene of that. No. It's it's a huge deal. I mean, it's like, it's one of those things that like anytime there's like one of those highlight reels of like video games in history, like it's always in there because it felt mm-hmm. like something shifted because before then there was almost this fear in the narrative of video games of like killing major characters because the major yeah. character is usually who you're playing, right? It's like named after them. It's like, you're going to, you're going to kill Mario. Like you play as Mario. Mario dies in the first act and he plays Luigi trying to avenge his <laughs> spirit. It also just felt like this big shift into like more mature stories in games that weren't just like violent, right? Because like you have like yeah. you have like mature games that are like violence and gore or like violence and humor or boobs, and that's kind of it, you know? Yeah, especially on the American side of things, yeah. where we had like Doom and Duke Nukem, right. and like you're not getting like cutting edge storytelling from Duke Nukem 3D. <laughs> nope, you're just you're just blowing stuff up. When you look into those games, they even admit like they push graphics, but like they like. You're in hell. Here's a gun. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's all we have for you.
But Final Fantasy VII was for me my first interaction with like a big sprawling narrative in a video game, and it, it, in a lot of ways, it was like a very keystone touch moment. Again, it's 1997 for Final Fantasy VII. The Next big thing I can think of would be like Ocarina of Time about a year later in 98. My PlayStation, when I was a kid growing up, got stolen. We couldn't get a new one. It was a whole thing. <laughs> For a long time, I didn't want to play a PlayStation ever again because I would just think of, because long story short, it was taken while I was using it. That's a story for a different day. I didn't have a PlayStation, so I didn't play Final Fantasy VII, but I remember going over to a friend's house. He was older than me. Like, I was, like, a kid when Final Fantasy VII came out, and he was, like, a teenager. It was, like, my mom's best friend's kid who had to hang out with me when my mom came over so she could hang out with her best friend, and he had to watch the child, which meant I would watch him play video games. But just, like, watching him play Final Fantasy VII was, like, games can be more than Blue Man Runs Fast? Because, like, my introduction to games was, like, Sonic the Hedgehog, I played my mom's Genesis like a ton, like into the ground. And so like, I played a lot of games, but they were a lot of games made in that old style of like game designers still making games geared towards kids and young adults and teens that felt impossible. That you had a story if you read through the booklet. I had never seen something like Final Fantasy VII with like these epic cutscenes. And this dialogue, and there's this story, and like love and loss and betrayal, and these larger than life themes. Final Fantasy VII was like, was that bitch for the industry for narrative storytelling in video games? But I don't know if it's the answer we're looking for. We're not nearly deep enough into the episode for this to be the answer, dear historians. So while it was my first experience of narrative video games, we need to go deeper. We need to go further back. In 1981, a very small but determined man rushed to save his girlfriend from his escaped pet gorilla. It was meant to have a Pac-Man and meant to break into the North American market. Donkey Kong is here. He's the leader of the bunch. You know him well. He's finally back to kick some tail. I'm putting, I'm putting. He's here. It's like, it'll be in there. Don't worry. Donkey Kong was developed by, I'm sure you've never heard of this guy. She, Geru Miyamoto, I'm sure you never heard of him. Who the fuck is that? Yeah, I mean, nobody. He's, you know, he made Donkey Kong. He, he was like a low level. He wanted to work for Nintendo. He wanted to design something. You know, he had one lucky break and then became the grandfather of Nintendo. <laughs> <laughs> Grandpappy Nintendo. Grandpappy Nintendo. I won't belabor who he is. <laughs> Because you can Google it and find out quickly. Also discussed made... him last week. Did we? We, we did. did. We did. We can't get away from this guy. It's no. like he's very influential. It's like everyone knows who Shigeru Miyamoto is and he's incredibly famous. Okay, so here's he's... the funny thing about Shigeru. We know mm -hmm. nothing about him. Like, no. We don't have like any like cool facts like, he did this fun thing and that's no. a quirky little fact. He is um, an enigma, a secret. He's... He's truly one of those people where I'm not 100% sure he's shared his real birthday. Yeah. Now that I think about it. 
Like, we know more about, like, uh, Sakurai. We're like, oh, yeah, Sakurai, like, yeah. slept under his desk during the the Smash Brothers. And, but, like, Miyamoto? We, we have yeah. no fun stories we... about how he created <laughs> his characters. Like, where was his inspiration for Zelda? Like... We know he's married. We know he has kids. He's married? Yeah, he's married. He has kids. But we also know, like, he doesn't he doesn't like to be in the public. Like, he, does, he doesn't go on TV... He does his best to not be recognized. And he's even he said this in one interview once that like he enjoys living in Japan because in Japan people don't bother him. He's That's like valid. anytime he goes on a trip abroad or he's somewhere where a lot of foreigners are, they all come up to him and want to like talk to him or ask him about games or get an autograph. And he's like he's very much become a personality for Nintendo because they need it and they need it now desperately with <laughs> Reggie Philomay's not really being the face of Nintendo of America and Bowser Bowser is not really President Bowser for Nintendo of America not the character is not really doing it for them yeah so he's they really not need, like he's not as um charismatic no so they really need like they they really leaned on Miyamoto and Reggie's like dynamic for a long time for their American market and mm -hmm. they really need like a face still so he's kind of become a face and I don't think he likes it he's just like please like, end he, me he really just wants to make games <laughs> that's like, like why really like the Zelda live action announcement was just like hello it's Miyamoto yeah Zelda's hey, coming uh, soon bye we're making a Zelda game don't Movie. you want to do a press conference no <laughs> goodbye you will not tape me if you try to tape me i will thwart you he worked on donkey kong along with gunpei yokoi who made the game and watch donkey kong is considered the first game to include story that players could follow it technically had little cutscenes in between the levels that were you following your escape pet gorilla to save your girlfriend this is back in the day when you would have to like read the manual to get like yes the story <laughs> the, the whole story yes. like sonic is also a big one for this like there's this whole story yes. to sonic that you would have just no clue like no clue the, these animals are trapped inside of robots because the robot man dr robotnik has put them in the robots because he likes robots like you, yeah. you just have no idea yeah. you're just i'm a blue guy that runs fast mm -hmm. gotta go fast what can i say and it's interesting because donkey Kong starts as an arcade cabinet yeah. like this it's like so before it had a game book to give you like it's just a cabinet and this shit was fire. <laughs> the, the entire reason for this game is we got to beat Pac-Man and we got to get into the American market. We got to get over there. By the end of its first year, again, it's released in 1981. By the end of its first year, Donkey Kong is selling 4,000 cabinets a month, Brenda. Jesus. This is so many. <laughs> I can't, like... I can't think of 4,000 places that would have an arcade cabinet today. No, like, arcades were like an epidemic in the 80s. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes, they were Because you got the 80s, you got malls, kids have money, kids are going out, like, the down, the small downtown is dead, they're all going to the mall, and every single fucking store has a Donkey Kong cabinet. Every single store. Like, games may on paper look like they make more, but if you scale them back down to like, 80s dollars, they're just, games just cost more. But they also have a bigger overhead now. Like, I couldn't find the budget on this game, but I can tell you right now it was $900 million. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is an obscene number to make on an arcade cabinet. And again, the, the story is at least part of it, right? Like, people talk about it. it. It may not be fully enmeshed into what you're doing, but it's used as a selling factor. You know, you're a hero out to save your girlfriend from not legally King Kong. I could see when people say that Donkey Kong is the start of storytelling and narrative in video games. But I disagree, because I think we need to go deeper. Deeper? Further back. Look into a cave. 
Zorp? Are you talking about Zorp? Hey, this is Editing Brenda from the future, and I'm just here to say that, yes, I refer to the classic text-based adventure game Zork as Zorp every time I bring it up. And yes, I bring it up a lot because I have played it and I do think it's a very important piece of video game history, but apparently not important enough for me to remember what it's called. Alright, yes, I call it Zorp. It's Zork. I know that. I've had a rough day. Bye. Oh no, because Zork has a father. And that father was born in 1976 in its colossal cave adventure. Secret histories of nerd mysteries will be back after these messages. I'm Emily Heller. And I'm Lisa Hannawalt. And we're the hosts of Baby Geniuses. We've been doing our podcast for over 10 years. When we started, it was about trying to learn something new every episode. Now it's about us trying to actively get stupider. And it's working. (laughs) Hang out with us and you'll hear us chat about... Gardening. Horses. Various problems with our butts. And all the weird stuff that makes us horny. That's so weird, all that stuff. (laughs) Baby Geniuses, a show for adult idiots. Every other week on Maximum Fun. Baby Geniuses, we know everything. Welcome back to Secret Histories of Nerd Mysteries. Will Crawford is a computer programmer, caver, rock climber, and recently divorced single father. (laughs) What a combo! He has a lot of free time on his hands and is no longer caving because of something he did with his wife, and now feels sad and hollow. Oh no! He also has two daughters to entertain during visitation rights that he has. So he did what any nerd of his skills would do. He made a video game. He would bring the caves to them. <laughs> I have a quote from Crawford I'll read here. The things that inspired this game are Mammoth Caves. Good cave right there. That's a good cave. It's the biggest cave system known. Oh. That's where he was a caver. He made some maps that people still use to this day. Damn. Because those cave systems are long, intricate, and you can die down there. It's like, you can if you go places people don't know, it's like, I don't know if you can get out. I can't imagine being a person who looks at, like, who, whose thing is going into caves, whose thing is like, I might not make it back out. Like I'm going into the abyss. Yeah. Like, I've been, I've been very amateur caving. And they had a bit where they turned off all the like the lights powered by the generators. And like, this is true darkness. Your mm-hmm. eyes will never adjust. There is no sunlight. We're this far down. And I'm like, damn, dog. Uh, maybe because I was like, maybe I could get into caving. And then they did that. And I was like, fuck this. <laughs> Hell no. <laughs> it's like, I have too much self-preservation in my body. Yeah. <laughs> like I am not white. Uh, yep. <laughs> honestly. Honestly. <laughs> So he's inspired by caving. I want you to take one guess what other thing inspired him to make this game. His divorce. It does start off a D. It's Dungeons and Dragons. Oh my god, it all comes back to D&D! It's it's like this game was not played at all. (laughs) (laughs) No one liked Dungeons and Dragons. It's only No one liked Dungeons and Dragons. They all got bullied. Everybody hated them. Yeah, so he he was interested in using his skills and interest in D&D to make a video game. That was you exploring a cave with minor fantastical elements that felt like how free it felt to play D&D, is what he said, because like video games were so very limited. I mean, you literally need to be a computer programmer to play most games. Yeah, I'm thinking about this guy being like, um, he's like, man, I'm feeling like very alone. I wish I could play D&D, but I'm very alone, so I'm going to make <laughs> a D&D that I can play whilst alone. <laughs> 
Crawford mentions, I was missing my kids. Also, all the caving had stopped because I did it with my wife. So I decided I would fool around and write a program that was a recreation of Mammoth Cave to explore them in a fantasy world. He goes on to mention he wanted the game to be so easy that his kids could have fun playing it, but have elements of this new game he picked up, Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, in 1976, I think D&D is on first edition still. Damn. If I remember right, I could be wrong. The game has two distinct versions. There's one that Crawford made in 1976, and then there's one that was made about a year later by Don Woods in 1977. The game was made to run on a PD, PDP-10 cool. mainframe computer. Good lord. Yeah, we're old, baby. <laughs> And the program acts like a narrator, telling the player where they are, sort of like a dungeon master would in D&D. You then input a command into the program, and then it'll do that. Be it move forward, pick up the lamp, turn right, turn left. The original point of the game is there are five hidden treasures for you to find. Later on, in the version that Don Woods made, you can find like more treasures, and there's points, and there's like monsters to defeat, more fantastical elements than what Crawford made, who was essentially making a game that like, when his kids came over, they could play on his computer. Mm-hmm. So this original version is based on his real-life maps when he caved in Mammoth Caving, Kentucky. He literally sat down and looked at his maps and then wrote a program that would follow his maps and then hid things in his own map to figure out where the program would put it. The biggest claim to success for this is that it was accessible for non-technical players, like his kids. Like The fact that he had kids is why he made the game feel like easy to play and not like something you had to like program in the game so you could play the game. It is an entirely narrative or teletype game. Numerous people made different versions of this game besides the one that Don Woods made. Don Woods had like the most famous other copy that he made after finding the game on a PD-10 computer at Stanford Medical School. <laughs> what? He found a copy and was like, oh yeah, and then he made, because all you need is a source code at this time. Like, again, this game wasn't sold. This game was like a game you could put on a computer if you had the code for it. Yeah, or like he pretty much just like handed big floppies, like the big ones. Like, you yeah. would hand, in, hand those out, and that's how early games were distributed. This is like the most zine way games have ever been. Exactly. Which is like a, a guy had an idea and then spent like a weekend or two making it and then would tell his friends and they tell their friends and they just like pass around floppy disks like, yeah, I made this game because I got a divorce and I need something for my kids to do. Do you want to play it? If your kids would like it, maybe you'll like it. I heard you, I heard you also got a divorce. <laughs> Here, this might help you with the, the divorce. There's also a love note attached to it. (laughs) (laughs) This game was also available on one of the very first computer networks ever made. I don't know how you would say it. It's A-R-P-A. Yep, ARPANET. The ARPANET. Uh, The ARPANET was for research and academic purposes. And games. (laughs) And games. These nerds also use it to share games. They use, I won't get into the specifics, but they use something called a packet switch system to talk to each other, Mm -hmm. which is essentially there is like, a collection of computers connected to the next collection of computers, and it was sort of like like a telephone almost. Yeah. The ARPANET was connected to pretty much every research computer in the country, in the United States. So the researchers could share their research and academics in a faster way than phone calls or letters. Also the games. Also games. <laughs> it's like from the dawn of time, man has made games. And from the dawn of computer technology, man has put game on computer. The gamers cannot be silenced. They will find a way. (laughs) Colossal Cave Adventures goes on to inspire people to continue to make games for the next decade, including a game called Mystery House, which is the first adventure game of graphical elements. Ooh. Who was Mystery House made by, Brenda? Did Roberta make it? 
She did. <gasps> Another group of people were expected to make a game called Rogue, which is the first roguelike video game. Oh. Which is where the genre gets its name. Oh my god, I didn't know that. That's cool. In the same way, Colossal Cave Adventures goes on to give adventure games their name. Oh! Oh, that's cool! I didn't know that! There's one more game that Colossal Cave Adventures inspired that I think that sadly pales it to the point where I think people forgot about Colossal Cave Adventures. And it's Zork. <laughs> I'm sorry, Brenda, we're not talking about Zorp. We're talking about the game Adventure, okay? If Zorp has no fans, I am dead. (laughs) And you didn't know that I was going to be like, Zorp, number one fan. Zorp, 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 Zorp. Have played Zorp beginning to end. (laughs) Zorp is one of the games that also inspires Brenda. You are correct. Okay. Good. Don't worry. The description of this episode is just going to be like, Zorp, 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 Zorp. No, the game it inspires is the game Adventure, which is where some people attribute the adventure game genre's name to. Adventure was made, conceived, and programmed to be Colossal Cave Adventure with graphics. Oh, so it's like Colossal Cave Adventure 2.0. Adventure is seen as the first action adventure game, while Colossal Cave Adventure is the first adventure game. Mm, okay. Adventure goes on to inspire, like, a bunch of shit. I mean, that game Ready Player One game. The show, the movie, fuck, book, The movie, fuck. the book, the video game. There's no video game. I've never watched it or read it. There's like some secret room in it that's inspired by, in the game Adventure, the programmer put in an Easter egg that's his bedroom. Only real gamers would get it. Classic Game Adventures relies entirely on story and narrative. With some humor from the narrator, like their Dungeon Master. Like becomes Zorp. one of the most influential video games I'm sorry, <laughs> of all <I'm> time. <laughs> inspiring a decade of gaming, which goes on to inspire another decade of gaming, which, I mean, again, we don't get to current the way current day games work without Colossal Cave Adventures. It inspires a lot of, like, inside jokes in the game world as well. So in Colossal Cave Adventures, there's a saying that you are in a maze of twisty little passages all alike. Mm-hmm. The that phrase shows up in other media and other games that are like referencing Colossal Cave Adventures. Oh, there's also an input that's a magic word that teleports you, which is X Y Z Z Y. People have put that in other games, like Adventure has that in their games. So Twisty little passages is also popular among hacker culture, <laughs> <laughs> where like hackers will use that past will use that phrase to like transmit different information to each other depending on what they're trying to get into. I don't want to get hacked, so I won't give away their secrets. <laughs> Cosco Adventures is huge and inspires generation of developers. One of those developers we've talked about already. Her name was Roberta Williams. And Roberta thought Colossal Cave Adventures needed a little bit more attention. So why did Ken and I want to revive Colossal Cave, a game that's nearly 50 years old? Good question. It started as a project when we were housebound because of COVID-19. Ken was interested in honing his programming skills for games with 3D graphics, and I suggested we could bring back Colossal Cave, a text game with full 3D graphics. It's a charming game and had such depth and rewarding gameplay that I knew it deserved to be discovered by a new generation of players. Ken agreed and off we went. That said, it is historical and you might be unaccustomed to some of the gameplay if you're more familiar with modern gaming. But it's okay, that's part of its charm. The game is vast and intricate, just like the real life Mammoth Cave. You'll need to play it multiple times to really master it. But please, just have fun and enjoy the adventure. There's the owl, There it is! I didn't stand a chance. This game's old, kids, okay? (laughs) 
Saint your state Fortnite. <laughs> I hope so much that this game comes out and like the speedrunners just go feral. This game is out. Oh, it's out. It, it did get a release. Colossal Cave Adventures re-released on Steam in January 2023 from Roberta and Ken's company Sierra Games Online, I think is what it's called. I'm surprised they still are in charge of Sierra. I haven't heard that name in a long time. Yeah, they're still around. It's it's kind of impressive. Yeah. Again, like, I, I, re- I really love about it is similar to like, oh, I was sad and got a divorce. Uh, Roberta and Kim were like, well, we're locked in our house during this pandemic. Want to fuck around and make a lot of Fuck around and find out. Ken was just like, I'm going to learn 3D programming from scratch. I'm going to learn Unity. <laughs> yeah. Well, I hope if speedrunners have not gone feral over this game, um, what are you doing? Get going. Do it. It's, go. It's Let's go. Rife for you. you did to- you hear her? She's like, you can't. You can't do it the first time. This is this is for you. Have a week of training and then speedrun. Mm-hmm. It's just like it's rife for your manipulations. Just go nuts. Just go. Just um, clip through I the wall. I know you will find a way. You will find a way through the cave. You will find a. You will find the passageway that no one has found yet. You'll do it. You, you'll literally just like fall through the floor and win the game. <laughs> the so, speed run is three seconds long. <laughs> so, you know, narrative and video games have many starts and stops. I personally have found that I think classic adventures is how we get to narrative and video games today. It's how we get narrative fiction in video games. Truly, it's some of the earliest, most influential games in this industry have narrative enmeshed into the game. I mean, Classic Hit Adventures, 1976, seems one of the first successful games. Inspires a decade of developers that are well-known, right? Like, Brenda dropped Roberta's name, like... I just know. Lightning speed. (laughs) From the dawn of gaming, we've wanted to tell a story. And video games Mm -hmm. are such an interesting medium to tell stories Mm -hmm. with. So, thanks, Crawford. Thank you. And thank you, listener. I'm sorry about your divorce, sir. Um, but without your divorce, gaming would without not be... Without your divorce, the gaming Brenda would... wouldn't have Zorp. <laughs> would not be the same. And I wouldn't have my beloved Zorp. Coming to Kickstarter in 2026. Coming to Kickstarter. Zorp. By Brenda. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's just Brenda playing Zorp. <laughs> the, the graphic... I've become a Let's Player, and I just play Zorp, and it's just like a text... <laughs> Thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Secret Histories of Nerd Mysteries. Our music was provided by Esperanza Asterion, and you can find more of her work at knifenun.bandcamp.com. Our introduction was narrated by Greg Aronica, and you can find him at Cafe3G on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. You can find us at Nerd Mysteries on Twitter, Blue Sky, and TikTok. The show is edited every week by Brenda Snell. If you love this show, please remember to leave us a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you consume your podcast content. This podcast is a proud part of the Maximum Fun Podcast Network. See you for the next mystery, Mistorians! Maximum Fun, a worker-owned network of artist-owned shows, supported directly by you.